Hello, friends. We are working on some big projects behind the scenes and realized the need to take a little break from recording new book clubs. Also, we have gained quite a few new followers in the last 12 months. And so we thought that now might be the right moment to revisit three of our most popular book clubs, the books from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. A few years ago, I, Sarah, wrote a short article about the trilogy, and it has had almost 6,000 views since then and continues to get quite a bit of attention every single month. Last March, we released Out of the Silent Planet, and it quickly became one of our most popular book clubs. In April, we released Paralandra, and in May, we released That Hideous Strength. While we work on some other things for you in the background, we will be re-releasing each of those podcasts in the same format this year. Thank you for listening in. We are so glad that you are here. Hello! You are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft here with Sarah Massark. We have with us today some of our BiblioGuides friends, Tanya Arnold, Sarah Kim, and Laura Yeverino, and one of our library ladies, Christy Stansfield. Yay! Yay! Well, Diane, I am thrilled that we are back for our monthly Plumfield Reads book club. As we say each month, and I will say it again, wouldn't be a book club if I didn't say it. This is our very most favorite thing to do. We are hanging out with some of our most favorite people, and we are reading the first book in a trilogy of books that you and I have long loved and cared about. And uh, these are these books tend to be pretty unfamiliar to a lot of people. Diane, how did you first hear about C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy? Where did you come across them? Well, my husband introduced me to C.S. Lewis 40 years ago, <laughs> and then I just started reading everything that he had, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. That, that's how. <laughs> do you call them the Space Trilogy, or do you call them the Ransom Trilogy? I guess I would call it the Space Trilogy. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to. Well, me either. And I've noted. Oh, okay. yeah. I've always called them the Space Trilogy as well. But I have heard commentary that they should more properly be called the Ransom Trilogy. Because, of course, the third book is not set in space. And it isn't really about space. It's about humanity. It's about the demythologizing of the power of the Enlightenment movement. And so I've heard that we should we should be calling them the Ransom Trilogy instead because Ransom's the hero. Well, that is way easier than saying that it's about the demythologizing of the, of <laughs> the Enlightenment. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, now when you first read the Space Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy, did you know that Ransom was patterned after Tolkien? Oh no, um, this was. Over 30 years ago. Right. And it, it, so no internet, nobody talking about it, just finding the books and reading and them reading and enjoying them. them. So before I really even had to think about them and take them apart and <laughs> assess them and analyze them, I just read them. Just read them for the joy of reading them. And I have to no. say, every time I've read them, it's been the same thing. I, I feel this need, you know, one of the most popular articles 
on our website is a little article I wrote many years ago about these books. And as you and I have said, it's not our best writing. It's not even a very good article. <laughs> and yet it continues to be read and, and viewed multiple times a day, every day. And it's because I think in that article, we're telling parents, please don't just give these to your ninth grade boy unprepared um, because the first one's not like the other two. And they're not just good books for boys. There's a lot going on in these. I do have to say, though, that when I did first read them, my oldest son was probably seven or eight, and I read it aloud to him. And then that year, he was in school at the time, and I made him a Hross costume for <laughs> for Halloween. <laughs> And I still have the picture. That's amazing. Because he loved it. <laughs> and he was young enough that he didn't, that the parts that maybe weren't appropriate, which is not, nothing bad. No, of course. But no. everything went right over his head. And I wasn't really thinking much about like picking books for my class mm -hmm. or anything. I was just reading to my son. And so I, I wasn't doing a lot of analyzing either. I just thought he's really going to enjoy this. Yeah. And he did. Yes. Yes. Well, and also you're not really a series person. So for you, it isn't, oh, he's going to read the first one. He'll want to read the second one. He'll want to read the third one. It was, we're going to read this book and we're going to enjoy it. Right. Well, and at that age, it wasn't even like he's going to go read this book. Right. So he didn't know there was another one. Right. Exactly. I don't know if I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that so that's my next question then. Did you know that these three books were a trilogy when you first read them? When did you discover that they were a trilogy? I don't remember. Uh, I, I don't. I remember that when I was reading them to him, we were living in Germany, and we had a library, an American library, on one of the posts over there, mm -hmm. and you just took what you could get. Right. And it was C.S. Lewis, so therefore you were going to read it. Right. So I don't even know when I figured out anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read these for the first time when I was at Hillsdale College. And I had, you know, I was moved in circles that really revered C.S. Lewis. And so it was all Lewis all the time, as much as you could get. And so I, when I first read it, everybody said to me, oh, you're going to like Ransom. He's Tolkien. And I said, yeah, but I don't like Tolkien. <laughs> Oh, right. Back then. Back then. Back then, I did. I thought, I remember telling all of my friends back then, I mean, The Hobbit is like the most boring book in the entire world. It's this guy and he's weird and he goes on a journey and he's in the woods and there's this weird people and he's still in the woods and it's dark and he's lost and it's boring. Oh, and that's right. He goes on more of a journey <laughs> there and back again. <laughs> so here I am. I am a college senior. At Hillsdale College, I am doing two terms at the University of Oxford. I'm at Oxford, and I have no idea who G.K. Chesterton is, and I don't like J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, pearls before swine. You fail. <laughs> fail. You fail. <laughs> oh, praise God that he is merciful. <laughs> and, and after two more attempts at The Hobbit, I finally figured it out and learned to like it much, much, much later in life. So Tolkien fans, don't worry. If you don't like it, I got you. You'll like them at some point. Well, I was moving in a circle that really revered Lewis as well. But the it was actually sort of a triangle. It was my husband and his dad oh, and me. Oh, special. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so friends, this is a little longer wind up than normal, but we did think it was important that we set the table a little bit before this. This is the first book in a trilogy. We think that uh, this book is a really marvelous book for all ages, as you can see from the fact that Diane shared it with her very young son. There is some content related to adult matters. It's all very, very innocently described. It's all would pretty much go right over the head of most children at most times. Um, but so this book, it is written for adults. This is not Narnia. Um, but it is... Uh, it's going into a much deeper thing. I have heard these three books described as being first, this one, masculine. This book wrestles with what it is to be man, both man and manly. And the second book is, it's elegantly feminine. Paralandra, we go to Venus. So Mars in the first book, Venus in the second book. It's very, very feminine. And in the third book, we are dealing with the consequences of the fall and the marriage of man and woman. And there's a lot of marital type questions in the third book. The third book deals with questions of what the Enlightenment has done to marriage and the way that the Enlightenment makes a mockery of marriage, makes a mockery of the Holy Family. And so these books get more mature as they go and are not necessarily good food for young readers. So one of the chief reasons why we wanted to do these, other than the fact that we just love them and, and think that there's a lot to discuss in these, is that we really want moms to be able to preview these books, either by reading them themselves or by listening into this discussion, and then you can best discern when and how to share these with the people in your life. And so friends, we wanted you to just understand going in that this book is uh, this book is the beginning of three books. It is a delightful story. It is part of an arc. And as adults, we think it's really excellent food for, for um, savoring. So this month is Out of the Silent Planet. Next month will be Paralandra. And the month after that will be That Hideous Strength. Now, it is a commonly discussed um, urban legend. I think it's true, but I, I don't have the facts completely straight on this, but that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were very, very concerned about what the modern Enlightenment was doing to big questions of the dignity of man, and they saw science fiction as being a field which was being dominated by atheists and felt like there needed to be some Christian literature that did justice to the divine. And so they flipped a coin to see who was going to write the time travel book and who was going to write the space book. And Lewis honored his end of the deal, and he wrote what many people call the space trilogy or what it can also be called the ransom trilogy. And Tolkien puttered about on a time travel book that he never finished. <laughs> so with that, let's welcome our very, very dear friends. So Sarah and Tanya... Lara and Christy, we're so glad to have you here today. And we didn't mean to minimize you by not bringing you in right away. We just wanted to uh, bring people into the bigger story before they got excited about the discussion. So, ladies, thank you for joining us today. So, Tanya, you read these in high school. Is that right? So, I've never read these. They've been on my to-read list for a long time. But I did grow up with C.S. Lewis as a staple in our home. So, I have read a lot of Lewis and loved him. 
it's just been one of those things that have, is constantly getting put on the back burner. Mm. So, And were you always familiar with these books? Did you know that they existed? I don't think so. Maybe not until five or six years ago. I wasn't, I was more familiar with Narnia and his other nonfiction. Right. I mean, so many people say, mm. when you say C.S. Lewis, they say Narnia, Screwtape, Great Divorce, and Mere Christianity, full stop. Mere Christianity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hardly, it's very rare that people will mention the Ransom books. But Sarah, you read them in high school. Is that right? Yes, I did. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think I was probably 16 or 17. I was saying I have a couple of my high school paperback copies, and one of them is copyright 1996. So I was at least 16 when I when I read these. Um, nice. And a lot, I think, just nice. went over my head. I just enjoyed the story, just like Diane said. and. I don't think I read any nonfiction of C.S. Lewis's until I was at least in college, but I read Narnia multiple times and the Space Trilogy, I think just once. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Nice. Laura, what about you? Is this the first time you've read these or have you read them before? So I think I read the first uh, Out of the Silent Planet years ago, probably as a kid, didn't know what I was reading, didn't like Mm it, and just didn't read anymore. Mm -hmm. And then when we were moving back to Texas from Florida, I listened to Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra on the drive, started that hideous strength and got so depressed. I quit. Understandable. (laughs) And so I I still haven't read the last one. I will read it for our book club. (laughs) But uh, also, I think I was listening to the audio Mm -hmm. And driving nonstop. In, and I was just like, <laughs> yes. And I was like, oh, I can't even do this. So I I read, the, I think I just, it was over my head when I read it. And I had no idea, mm. no understanding of what he was trying to tell. Because right. it is, there's a story. He is trying to subvert the enlightenment ideal in these books in a really profound way. Well, I had a similar experience with Chesterton. I read... Um, a man called Thursday and and knew I could tell you like the events of the story and knew I had completely missed the whole point of the story. Yes. Me too, Lara. Someday we can read that one together Uh. and you can tell us what I missed. I really want someone to explain that book to me because I did not get it at all. I had the same experience, but I can't decide whether I care enough for somebody to explain it to me because I got done and went, what? Ah, I don't care. You know, I would say that as a Catholic, I find Lewis's theology to be, you know, stable and good, but thin. Um, I find that Lewis takes Chesterton's theology and makes it every man, which I love that about him. But he, he's more of the he's more of the hamburger to Lewis, or to Chesterton's steak dinner. But Lewis baptizes literature in a way that I have never felt Chesterton was as successful at. I do not enjoy Chesterton's fiction nearly as much as I enjoy Lewis's fiction and I and or nearly as much as I enjoy Chesterton's nonfiction. So I I got the man called Thursday. I, I was I just didn't love it either. <laughs> this is my cobb and weird. Thought, There's gotta be a better way to tell the yes. story. <laughs> but that's like Lewis's Dark Tower. Have you ever read that one, Diane? Ah, a really long time ago, I think. I found it repulsive. And so I was just like, what is it? I heard there was controversy that he wrote that one, that it was supposed to be a sequel to this, 
and that they weren't even sure it was his. I think that's true yeah. that that they don't know. I would mm. like to think that it isn't his. <laughs> There's a comment in the postscript of Out of the Silent Planet where they're talking about why they decided to write this story as fiction, like that, like it actually happened, but why they wrote it as fiction. Right. Uh, to what we need for the moment is not so much a body of belief as a body of people familiarized with certain ideas. So it, yes. I think that's really like Lewis is telling yes. us what he's doing. He's really trying to get people more familiar yes. with the ideas that he cares about by writing them into fiction. So maybe you won't quite get exactly what he's saying, but these ideas will sort of be percolating in your mind and more people's minds. Yeah. Yes. The impressions will be formed in your heart and mind. A- and I love that. And to know that he considers this an act of war. These books are an act of war against the establishment. They are an act of war against all of the Enlightenment talking heads, which that's a nod to the third book, all the Enlightenment talking heads that are trying to tell us that we are nothing more than Western or divine. And he is fighting back. And I think he's also acknowledging that that's what H.G. Wells was doing. That's what George Bernard Shaw were doing. The, the, those writers of that time who were writing the same kinds of stories, but from a bent perspective. And so both sides were trying to form the minds and hearts of a body of believers so as to win the war. Christy, what about you? When did you first read this? Okay. I read these after Narnia. I think Narnia was my first introduction to C.S. Lewis, and I was a very young Christian. Mm -hmm. So I had never read Narnia before, and so I was in my late 20s, I guess. And then just looking for something else, and I liked space, and so that just seemed to come up next. So I know I read them. I remember absolutely nothing Mm. about Mm -hmm. them. So... As I'm reading this first one, I am trying to put myself back ah. then as I was reading it and thinking, what was what was I mm-hmm. getting? What was I thinking? Mm-hmm. How do I not remember one bit of this? I mean, it was 40 years ago. I get it. I've read a lot of books <laughs> since then. But I just, I, and I know I've read all mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. And, but... That that's as far as it mm-hmm. goes, and then I'm pretty sure I read Mere Christianity. I, I started down the path, could not make it through Screw Tape Letters. <gasps> no just, way. Now, all right, I'm telling you, here, the Luddite is among you. So just hold on to your seats, because here's what I'm gonna do. I am going. I'm in my car right now listening to my favorite podcast because I read along, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I probably don't know what these books are really all mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And I'm just riding along and I'm going to listen to my favorite podcasters tear down the books and mm-hmm. tell me all the cool stuff. And, and in my seat, I'm going to be talking back <laughs> to the radio and, you know, like I usually do when I or or cheer when I think I actually got the point ahead of somebody else. And, you know, so that's 
that's how I'm approaching this here. So you guys, I'm just sitting here in my car <laughs> and I'm riding along listening to the podcast. And, and, and I will preface that by saying that's as far as I got in CS Lewis, mm. because I am not a nonfiction person. Mm. Okay. I, and he's dense. Come on, guys. <laughs> he's very, I mean, he can be very yeah. esoteric. Yeah. Yeah. He's dense. And I didn't even get through a man called Thursday. <laughs> okay. So that's as far as I've gotten in Chesterton, except for the Father Brown. No, Father Brown's charming. Yeah. Oh, but I didn't read them. I, I think I had the flu and I was looking for something along the lines of I had fi finished Lark Rise to so Candleford. You're watching the BBC. And, and, no, no I, I, I did not. I had to stop. Mm -hmm. I had to stop because even though I hadn't read the books, I thought this can't be right. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Good. This nope, can't be you're right. right. <laughs> so there was too much modern, modern stuff, stuff mm -hmm. like what they did to Anne of yes. Green Gables when they mm -hmm. did that. Okay. So there I am. I I'm, I'm just all out there saying this is, this is the book club that I am attending <laughs> because I, think I'm gonna learn something. <laughs> well, I think it's marvelous that that you did read these books, you know, 40 years ago, because you do love science fiction. And I'm so glad that you're here reading them again with us, because it'll be interesting to see what you think as as these books go on, because they they're different. <laughs> they're definitely different. Are we making her attend Paralandra? Oh, yeah. She's coming to all the space books. All right. <laughs> Oh, all right. oh, I'm 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 in for all of it. Okay. <laughs> well, that kind of sets it all up, right? We have a variety of experiences with this. Um, so Tanya, you've read them once. Christy and Sarah and Lara, you're on your second read. Diane, do you know how many times you've read these? No, me either. It's it's several. Yeah, it's, <laughs> me. It's at least four, maybe more. And, and I'll tell you. Interesting thing for me. So somebody who has read them maybe every, I don't know, maybe every five or six years since college, every time I think, oh, I have to go pick up that book again. I do not want to read that book again. It's dark. It's cold. It's confusing, especially the third one. Um, I just don't know if I have the emotional bandwidth for this book. And then I get in it and the writing is, in my opinion, so beautiful. And his, his call to action on behalf of humanity is so motivating and exhilarating for me. You know, I'm just cheering for Ransom the whole time. I'm like, why, why do I resist these books so much? They are, so for me, such a life-giving read every time. And so funny how I have that disconnect in my brain. All right, friends, this is your spoiler warning. From this point on in our book club, we are going to discuss it all. So if you haven't read and you don't want spoilers, now is the moment to grab your phone, grab your computer, press pause, and come back once you're caught up. If you don't mind spoilers, well, buckle up, get ready for the ride. We're happy to have you coming along with us. I really love that Ransom starts out kind of a fumbler. Well, Tolkien. <laughs> right, but he's but he's an imperfect hero. Mm, totally. And then the next one is almost is completely different in what's required of him. And then by the end he he's the mature uh 
I, what's the word? Anyway, he is the hero. He has become the epitome of a hero. I'm not, that's all I'm going to say. Well, Because <laughs> I was going to say more that might be you know, sort of spoilish. Not unlike Aragorn, even though Aragorn isn't much of like a bumbler, we see Aragorn sort of waiting his time in the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, he's he's not really ready for the sword to be restored. He's not totally excited about taking on the task that he knows is in front of him. But he matures and grows into his kingship. And I, I think Ransom matures and grows into his his role as advocate. I just, I tend to like an imperfect hero mm -hmm. better than the ones who never, ever make a mistake or have it all figured out before they get started. He doesn't have it all figured out. And realistically, who would? Mm -hmm. He just went to a different planet. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot in these books, but what struck you as being the thing you want to talk about today? What what surprised you or what did you love or what annoyed you? Lara, what about you? I want to know why nobody's made an illustrated edition. Because it's too hard I, to imagine. <laughs> that's That was the conclusion I came to was it starts off with such vivid descriptions, yeah. but I was having such a hard time visualizing it that I was like, ugh. I really want an illustrated edition to help me with this. And then I thought, and then it wouldn't seem so otherworldly. Right. Bingo. And I still want one. But when you reread Paralandra, I don't know how you would do that. Right. And when you read That Hideous Strength, I don't think anybody would want to see that. <laughs> but in this one, you, you know, if somebody did do it, you'd probably be going, that's not right. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the fun things about knowing Jill Morgan so well is that we get to hear as people have reactions when she does covers for books. And without fail, she'll release a beautiful new book. And somebody will be like, that is not how that cover should be. Okay, sorry. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> and I think that's, that for me, with the Space Trilogy, I don't know how you would capture what's in people's imaginations. I, I think I somehow forgot that some, like the, the Sorns are sort of reptilian. It, like, I always forget that part. Well, I think this is also why your mind has a little bit hard time holding on to the story after you're done reading it mm -hmm. was because there's so many parts of it that were hard for me to actually visualize that you get the point of the story, but then you forget all those details because you had such a hard time yeah. seeing it in the first place. Like it towards the end when Ransom is brought to the Oyarsa and there's the throng of the Hnau. The only way my mind can picture it is to remember the scene from the Disney Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children are presented to Aslan. That, that's where my mind goes. <laughs> I just see the, the, them split apart and all these strange creatures approaching the deity. <laughs> One of my favorite lines this time, it was actually kind of a paragraph, but I think that Weston and, and everybody's just now getting out of the spaceship and it says that um, Ransom, he gazed about him and the very intensity of his desire to take in the new world at a glance defeated itself. He saw nothing but colors, 
colors that refused to form themselves into things. Moreover, he knew nothing yet well enough to see. You cannot see things till you know roughly what they are. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that might be like one of the themes through the whole thing is that you just, when you don't have any frame of reference, it's not going to stick. Mm-hmm. Weston and Divine never develop eyes that see. Right. I thought it was interesting when I read it this time, the first bit where he's traveling through space, I was found myself being bothered by the description because it felt so unrealistic and thinking like thinking of how he was viewing earth from space. And obviously we have these amazing images now of what earth looks like from space and what space is like. And then I caught myself when he was describing it, realizing that was Lewis's whole point. (laughs) (laughs) That our modern mind is viewing space completely differently from the medieval mind. And he's trying to show this contrast. And I thought it was just fascinating that like my mind immediately went that like modern perspective of like, this is not how it really is. Like it's bothering me, but right, (laughs) of course, that's not how it's supposed to be. (laughs) That was Lewis's point. Yeah, that. He had this medieval picture in his mind of the universe and the cosmos being full of life, more full of life Mm -hmm. than Earth. And we think of space Mm -hmm. as this empty, dark nothingness and have lost this concept of the heavens. And he was trying to describe it in how Ransom would like look out of the spaceship and just be kind of overwhelmed with, what does he call it, like like another Donne, like Zeus like coming down, just like pouring this glitter on him yes (laughs) (laughs) I actually marked I think it was close to what you're talking about Sarah because I thought this was so powerful where it says but Ransom as time wore on became aware of another and more spiritual cause Mm -hmm. for his progressive lightning and exaltation of heart a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him. Mm -hmm. And I really Mm -hmm. sat for a minute. That was chapter five. So the first three chapters were very traumatizing. Yes. I thought. Yes. I I was like, wow, that is some descriptive chatter about abduction. Um, And then this is chapter five. And when he talks about the modern mind being captured in the mythology that happens after science Mm -hmm. i just kind of shut the book and paused for a second thinking interesting i need to think on that because there's a he's saying a lot there's a lot of punch in that in those couple of lines well there is i mean those first few chapters we have pure evil i mean what these men are doing is pure evil they need a victim, willing or unwilling. And so the first they go to, the first victim they try to recruit, because of course they think they need a victim. That's how they've interpreted the Oyarsa's invitation. They go to somebody who they think is not even really human. His developmental disabilities preclude him from being entitled to dignity. What? But is Lewis wrong? N- no. Weston and Divine, of course, are wrong, but they are pretty accurate specimens of entire circles of humanity, and it's a growing body of people who share those opinions. 
And so the disposability of that first boy, and then, well, let's just get this bumbling philologist as the replacement victim, because what good is he anyway? He has no family. No one's looking for him. If he's gone, nobody will notice until it's too far in the future to do anything about it. So again, that would be someone else who is in their mind on the margins or in the margins who's not relevant to society, not not needed. And isn't that well, interesting that that's exactly who you are, so would have wanted to talk to anyway? Yeah, and I always feel like it's that idea that somebody has this great idea for humanity that they think is great, that they think will be instituted upon all people, and a sacrifice needs to be made, mm-hmm. but not by me. Right. Right. It's always the dictator that's going to enslave other people, but not himself, starve other people, but not himself, go to war and young men will die so that old men might be powerful, but never them. And so there you see in Weston and Divine, like they need a sacrifice. Well, how about the one of one of you two? No, exactly. You two will do. But no, it's never it's never me. It's always the. Mm-hmm. So Yarsa calls it out, right? Right towards the end of the book when he's talking to Weston and saying, what exactly is it yes. that you want or what exactly is it that you love? Because everything you're describing doesn't make sense. You say you love man, but you're being cruel to your own kind. So what is it about men that you want to see succeed? And it's not even your own men. You're not even your own heirs you're trying to protect. You're not trying to protect yourself. You're not trying to protect your children. Just the concept of man, the concept of man which you have so reduced and defiled, it's in, it's, it, it's, it, it is intellectually inconsistent. It's the, that's that bent perspective, he calls it, right? Yes. The Oyars is trying, he keeps sort of talking to himself like, I don't, why, why did your, your Oyarsa leave you like this? And he's sort of trying to figure out, you know, what is Weston for? Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, I see, because a bent thou can do more evil than a broken one. Mm-hmm. So your, who, whoever's in charge of you, who should be looking at you going, your life is over. <laughs> <laughs> he left you like that because you're more effective bent than broken. Right. Because broken evil, mm-hmm. you know, it's so obviously evil people are more inclined to rise up and resist it. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who have not read the other two books, I think this is a moment where it might just be important to explain one thing without spoiling anything. So this is not a spoiler overall, but maybe some context. The big question that the Yoyarsa is asking is, why did your Oyarsa do this? Why did he abandon you? That's the question that gets an answer, shall we say, in the third book. We understand the timeline of cosmology, the timeline of the heavens, and the timeline of salvation by the end of the third book. So know that that's where we're, where we're headed. So this book is asking the question, why were you abandoned? And I think it's just fascinating how he protects his own and how he unmakes creatures. And there's both a good way of being unmade and a, and a sad way. The second book is going to tell us something very, very important in this overall thing. But this is all pointing to the salvation of all mankind by the end of the third book. But it's a it's a weird path to get there. 
Is it a spoiler to say what kind of being we think Oyarsa is? I don't, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to talk about that in here because we're definitely forced to question that. Like, is he an angel? Is he a demigod? What is he? So yeah, I think let's have that conversation. So I would say that it's a, there was a point in the book where it be, was clear to me that it was quoting First Peter one twelve, and it says he's a, an angel because he said, Oyarsa says, these are things that I long to look into. And that's an exact quote of what the angels are looking into Christ's actions on earth mm-hmm. that they don't have the knowledge of. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a, a bent Oyarsa would be a fallen, a fallen angel. angel. Right. So it makes sense that that would be Satan. It was around that same section. Um, in my book, it's on page 150. Oyarsa is saying, I see now how the Lord of the silent world has bent you. There are laws that all now know of pity and straight dealing and shame and the like, and one of these is the love of kindred. He has taught you to break all of them except this one, which is not one of the greatest laws. This one he has bent till it becomes folly and has set it up thus bent to be a little blind Oyarsa in your brain. I thought that was poignant for our discussion. And also it reminded me in the abolition of man, I think sometimes like his ideas and all these other books, nonfiction books come through in his fiction. There's a whole section at the end of that book that are basically the natural laws. And he's talking about like the law of general benevolence and duties to parents and elders and ancestors, duties to children and posterity, things that, that, you know, all humans are supposed to basically know and understand. I thought that was interesting. Things that should be so intuitive to us. They shouldn't need laws to protect them. I thought that quote tied into Keeper of the Bees Mm. as well. Because I thought, oh, playing the game square. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought of when (laughs) the quote quote said, was it square dealing? Yes, yes, playing the game square. Yes, a scout came to mind (laughs) when I read that. And that is the joy of doing these book clubs is they build on each other, right? This is kind of a throwback to what Christy was saying at the very beginning when she was saying she loves to listen to her favorite podcasts because sometimes she wonders if she's just not getting it. Maybe someone can help dissect it. And I for sure do not have a PhD in English literature or anything like that. (laughs) But I always have to, to remind myself that I think classics are for everyone. Yes. And it's not about whether you can dissect it. No. Diagram it and you can see all of the deep pieces. I, I just think it grows on you. Like every time you read or reread something based on your experiences and the other books that you're reading, it starts to impress upon you. And so I was reading this for the first time and I recognized there's some communication going on here between Lewis and the reader mm-hmm. that's more than a storyline, right? Like I'm recognizing right. that and I'm asking myself, what is Lewis trying to tell me here as a modern reader in the 21st century? When this was from the 1940s, right. like what, what was he seeing 80 years ago right. that I don't see because I wasn't even born then? My brain just kept chewing on a lot of this for the last couple of days and like trying to process different things. And I think more of it will come. So I just sometimes think moms should just also, it's okay to read it like Diane said and just 
let it sit on your heart and let it talk to other things that you've read and then just keep reading. And then you'll make a connection and go, oh, like I love Sarah that you know so much and that you and Diane have spent a lot of time on Mm -hmm. this book. But for me, I'm still like, oh, Lewis, what are you trying to say? And I just want to share this one where I thought I read this paragraph, I don't know, six times because I thought he's belittling other people that are educated professors here. Oh, yeah, totally. This is... (laughs) Isn't he? Oh, yeah. 100%. But see, I didn't know that because I don't know what you know. So <laughs> so good so job. When I was reading it. Well, so when I was reading it, I was thinking, snap. <laughs> <laughs> he is making fun of the establishment Yay. and the so-called educated right. people, right? So it's a chapter one or chapter two. It says, Ransom was very much perplexed. There was something about the whole scene, suspicious enough and disagreeable enough to convince him that he had blundered on something criminal, while on the other hand, he had all the deep, irrational conviction of his age and class that such things could never cross the path of an ordinary person except in fiction, and could least of all be associated with professors and old school fellows. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I kept thinking, yeah, that's right, like... These aren't the type of people to do X, Y, Z. <laughs> so then I kept rereading that thinking, is he making fun? He's basically saying that educated people couldn't do bad things. They can yes. harm you. You shouldn't just assume yes. that they have your best intentions at heart. Right. So then I was thinking, okay. I mean, you're one of the establishment, right. Lewis, so let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So it was just it was a fun paragraph for me because I thought, okay, where are you well, going? Where, and he's what, doing it. He's doing it in two in two ways. First and foremost, he's saying, you know, people are people, and sinful people are sinful people. Mm-hmm. So anybody could do evil to anybody. You can't preclude anybody. Mm-hmm. And two, what evil are they doing with, as he calls it in the abolition of man, the green book? What evil are they doing to mankind? Let's just give a fable to put a face to the evil that the establishment is doing. So there's there's two yeah. levels there. Yeah. And he lays it out. That's chapter yeah. one. So he just like, Cards on go. the table. <laughs> Cards on the table. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was so well done. I think kind of another maybe layer or just branch of that is that Ransom is also having to kind of put it in perspective where he knew Divine when they were in school mm-hmm. and he didn't really like him. But he didn't have the concept that somebody could go that far the other direction from where Ransom himself ended up as an academic, as a philologist, mm-hmm. you know, the the whole hum kind of a person isn't wouldn't he have come out like that too? Mm. How could he have gotten so far away from right mm-hmm. if he started along the same area of the path? Well, they haven't seen each other for a long time and it doesn't take that long to go bad. No, it doesn't. So well, and also, he has a lot to wrestle with. And there's also this British sense of hierarchy and that class and that all these guys, they were school fellows, right? They all came up together, even though Lewis was an orphan. They all came up together in this certain social strata. And, you know, there aren't sins in that strata. They're too gentlemanly for that. And I just can't. I, when I was reading those things, I could not think Sherlock Holmes. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of murder and mayhem going on in those fine, nice, uppity houses. Well, and I think, isn't it interesting when, like, for Ransom, a reality is presenting itself that is completely in opposition to a belief yes. you hold. 
So the belief he's holding is that there couldn't be anything nefarious here. It doesn't make any right. sense because of my beliefs about right. these types of people and the types of things that they would do. And yet the reality that I am now experiencing is that, that that's completely different. And yet I still, my brain still can't make resolution with it. And I think throughout the story, his brain can't make resolution with all of his experiences. And I think it's it's a hard thing to understand, but I have an earthly experience that I had where my brain couldn't make resolution with a reality that was happening. But when I was about 20, I was on the freeway here in Utah and I was heading south and coming rapidly towards me about 80 miles an hour on a southbound freeway was a northbound <gasps> truck. And my brain, my brother was sitting next to me. He was 18 and my 16-year-old cousin was in the back seat. And it's happening really quickly, right? Because that car is coming and all of the southbound traffic is moving. And it basically, the cars start to part like the Red wow. Sea. That's how I can describe it. Cars are just parting. And my brain cannot, pro like I kept saying, I kept thinking there is a car coming at me. And then I kept thinking I'm on a southbound freeway and I'm, I'm a relatively new right, driver, right? right. And um, I, I, I just couldn't process it. And then at the last second, I started to swerve to the left and it impacted the car right next to me. <sighs> And both cars went up, you know, it was two trucks hit impact because the truck couldn't, cars weren't parting fast right. enough. There wasn't enough time and space to figure out what to do. Rotated in front of me. I was able to swerve and go around Wow! and, and got off the freeway and stopped. But even then my mind is like, I just experienced a reality that should not right. be. And it's funny how your brain in the face of evidence sometimes cannot process that process something mm -hmm. that you think should not be or cannot right. happen. So I was kind of thinking of that experience um, as Ransom is trying to process this new planet. And he can't, like when it says that he, he's seeing these colors, but he can't know what he cannot see. Mm -hmm. It was making a lot of sense for me because I thought, yes, I've experienced something minututely similar where my brain just couldn't, it couldn't wrap But how different was his response was to Weston's, <laughs> that scene I think was almost hilarious towards the end where he was trying, like he had in his mind this idea that these now around him were basically like primitive peoples and he was trying to and with which exert his power and... over them yeah. with this frame of mind of what he's thinking is happening <laughs> which we as the reader know is completely <laughs> um inaccurate <laughs> so completely really different. <laughs> but it's different right from ransom who like you said he's he doesn't understand he's not sure how to process what's happening around him but he is not so close-minded. Like he, he is able to sort of question it and yeah. come to different conclusions. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Rather than control the situation, which is what Weston was trying to do. When they went and dipped him in the cold water seven times and then like, so we did it seven more. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but then that just made me think of Uncle Andrew. Oh, you yes. remember in, in the in the magician's um, nephew in the magician's <laughs> nephew when the animals finally bury him because they they can't figure, figure out. out what he is. Yeah, <laughs> they plant him like a tree, and he never can. He can't hear them speaking because he has turned his mind off to the possibility. Right. Yeah, it's the same kind they, of thing. When they come and they're like, "We think we've done the right thing. Like we don't know. Like we put him in the cold water." And I'm thinking, "You're waterboarding him." <laughs> And Ransom is just like, yeah, well, like he's kind of silent on it. I was, oh, was, I thought that was kind of funny. And <laughs> and like he kind of got what he deserved because they're doing their best to understand him. Yeah. And 
and he's making no sense. Like Sarah was saying earlier, they're having this circular conversation that doesn't make any right. sense. And Lewis is walking you through the whole conversation right. and showing you that it's the circular thinking that's illogical. Right. right. I think he's, you know, coming out of this. Uh, this was written in 1938. So it's mm-hmm. right before World War II. And I mm-hmm. think he's looking at the things he's hearing around him and just going, you know, I'm seeing yes. reality and it's not making sense to my brain. I, I can't right. understand what you all are saying is not lining up with truth. And, and it seems like people next to me aren't seeing it. They've turned right. their brains off to this. Right, right. And, and how powerful that that book could so call out what would be the hit, the atrocities of Hitler that's coming. And it's still relevant to the atrocities that are being committed today in, in polite society. It is really a, a masterwork in that regard that this book is so perennial and timeless because it's so human. It's dealing it- with the human condition. It's funny because my daughter just did her um, Bachelor of Fine Arts show and she's majoring in sculpture and ceramics. And the theme of her work was the effects of the industrialization on humanity. Um. And so she's and it's so funny that I read this and go, hmm, she's she's portraying in art exactly what Lewis was talking about here. And it's still a relevant conversation for her. Like the fact, um, you know, multimedia, cell phones, social media, um, the pandemic, all of those things, she turned into art of how it's affected Mm -hmm. her personally and her group of people around her. And I thought, oh, I wonder what she would think about this book. (laughs) Mother Daughter Book Club. I just want to go back to one of the things that Tanya said, and this is the reason why we love these book clubs. We are choosing books. Diane and I are choosing books that we have read because we feel like as stewards of the podcast, it's it's probably important that in the these early days that we be laying down a lot of books that we know are going to be good ones for discussion. So they have to be something we have a working knowledge of. But we delight in the fact that very often the books have not been read before by everybody in, in attendance. So we have sort of a spectrum of responses to it. But that doesn't mean that we think we're experts. We're choosing the books we already know and love. So we, we've stacked the deck in our favor in that regard. In it, in it, it's in an attention. It is in an attempt to be good stewards of your time and to invite you all into a really what we believe will be a beautiful and life-giving conversation. But I love, Tanya, that you are so willing to say, I have not read this and I don't know these things. I don't know what the subtext of this is. I don't know how this one connects with his greater body of work. But I love that I'm enjoying this book or I'm getting something out of this book. And that's the point. This is like Legos. It's one block at a time. And sometimes you're going to go and move a block around. Sometimes you're going to want to keep revisiting a particular thing. But we're building. Everything we're reading is building. And so I love that we've talked about how this is, you know, there's some keeper of the bees going on in here. I think all of us are probably also in some ways comparing this to Enchantress because, of course, Enchantress is a space book. And so that's the whole point. 
We're talking about, our, we're letting our books talk to each other and continue to form newer connections in our minds, continue to shape our ideas. And I love that the more time we spend together, the more common vernacular we have with each other because we can draw from our commonly read books. So thank you for highlighting that, Tanya. I will readily admit that I had to read with a dictionary a lot of the times. There were <laughs> lots of words that I thought if somebody asked me, you know, there's a difference between picking up something from the context mm -hmm. and ag actually knowing what they mean by these terms. Uh, there were some boating terms. There were, you know, allusions to things that I didn't Philosoph get. Right. And philosophy terms. Yeah. Right. Right. And so I had, I kept little notes and, and defined things. And I would, you know, this may be sacrilege, but I kept picturing in my mind, a wrinkle in time had some, mm. it made parts of this more accessible to me because sure. I had read a wrinkle in time. Like there was this part um, where they're flying on the Pegasus in a wrinkle in time and they had to put flowers over their nose to be yes, able to breathe. To breathe. And, yes. the, and I thought, oh, she totally stole that from Lewis because there was that part <laughs> in this where they had, where he was climbing the mountain on the back of the Sorn and he, they said, yes. here, put this put thing over him. On. Yeah. And I was like, mm. oh, <laughs> Nate Wilson in the Ashtown, in the Ashtown burials books. Same thing. I just thought about the squid that they have to put on their faces to breathe. Thieves. All of them. <laughs> Laura, I was going to say, with you saying you had to have the dictionary, I was blessed to find a paperback copy for 75 cents at a local thrift store where some lovely reader before me put definitions <laughs> in, the, in the margins. And so like, for example, the beginning of chapter three, where it says he had a pretty severe headache. And this combined with a general lassitude discouraged him. And next to lassitude, they wrote weariness, fatigue, languor. Oh. Languor? How do you say that word? Yeah. I don't know. Diane, right. how do you say it? Languor. I think that's right. Languor? Or languor. It sounded <laughs> funny as I said it out loud. And it's... Languor. I may never have said that out loud before. <laughs> I know. That's, a, that's the other thing with readers. We know the words and then we go to say them out loud and we think... Uh, Thank you, Tanya, because as soon as I said poignant, Song comes over and he's like, what did you just say? He's like, it's poignant, <laughs> isn't it? He always corrects my pronunciation and English is not his first language. <laughs> because I picture the word in my head and just pronounce it. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Anyway, so this lovely reader before me had done definitions for words. So it was really Yay fun for margin to notes. imagine who this person was. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and usually I don't like to have it be highlighted or marked, but I was starting to feel a connection to the previous reader. <laughs> <laughs> so my grandfather, my grandfather was one of the most well-read human beings I ever knew. So he had a great books of the Western world series and I actually inherited that. And then he bought the annuals each year and he was the type who literally read everything he bought. He bought great courses, company courses, and he would read the transcript after having viewed the courses and having done all the reading that goes with the courses. He was a pathologist. And yet he's doing, you know, double, triple, quadruple the reading on literature and everything. So I have his annuals from the great books of the Western world. And I think it was 1965. C.S. Lewis's Evolution of Man is in there. Uh, excerpts from it. And my grandfather, in big pencil, wrote nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I 
love that book so much. (laughs) Grandpa, it's genius. Why do you think this is nuts? And he would like probably agree agreed with Lewis politically and socially and all of that. So I just thought, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, so good margin notes when they're from good people. Otherwise, thank you anyway. <laughs> so at some point, I need somebody to read the second to the last paragraph and explain it to me because I read that and I was like, I have no idea what I just read. You mean that huge one? I mean, it was the second to the last paragraph. Yes, and I was... That starts with, the other scene is Nocturne? Like in the postcard? Yes. Yeah, I'm definitely in my car right now. Because <laughs> I read this on my Kindle, so I could cheat. Because I mine has the way to look up stuff, right? Oh, nice. And I actually had to look up one of his own terms in his language that he made up and do a search on it because I couldn't remember. I got so lost in the weeds. I couldn't remember what that was. And, and so I had Mm -hmm. to go back and look at all his references and that was really good. But I, I loved that because I don't highlight books as a rule because it annoys me because I can't make my lines right. And then it would annoy me to look at that after I made those lines. Three by five cards. Yeah, well, I don't do that either. But this Kindle experience was wonderful because all I had to do was touch the screen Mm -hmm. and draw it out. And there it was. It was like, oh, yes. But now I'm driving in my car. And guess where the Kindle is? I can't even read my notes because they're sitting on the seat beside me. And literally, I'm in the building, and the Kindle's in the car. And I'm like, oh, I even highlighted some things. I I caught some of that. That was really, it was really <laughs> fun, was catching some of those quotes and catching some of his boating references and some of those things. It was like, Christy, you're sounding like you're, what? Is my mic weird? No, you're sounding like you're pro industrial revolution not against it here <laughs> you're no, not sounding no. very luddite i i know well did we have our limits we have our limits laura did you find your paragraph I did the very last the one that says starts well, the other scene no, is not yeah it's the end of that where it says perhaps the best comment is in the author whom i mentioned to you for as it is it was well said of the great Africanus that he was never less alone than when he was alone. So in our philosophy, no parts of this universal frame are less to be called solitaire than those which the vulgar esteem most solitaire since the withdrawing of men and be signifieth, but the greater frequency of more excellent creatures. What? I think that goes back to what I was saying about his medieval cosmos of the universe that we see as empty, but Lewis saw as full of life. So when we think we're alone, when Ransom thought he was sort of alone out in space with just Weston and the other guy, Divine, he's actually surrounded by the Eldil and all these other creatures that maybe he can't perceive or see, but he is not alone out there in the universe. And our universe, you know, he's saying is 
fuller than we can imagine, I guess. I'm so glad you got that and out of that. He talked a lot about like the disenchanting of the universe, like with the enlightenment, like the universe has sort of become disenchanted. We, we don't like see any of like the spiritual realm it, anymore. That's actually there. I, comple- I completely I read agree it. with you, Sarah. And I think his argument is we, we tend to think of that aloneness as being, being supreme, that that's a good thing that we, we are so enlightened that we've realized everything else that we thought was really meaningless and that we are the masters of our own destiny. We are the gods of our own lives versus what Lewis is advocating here is like, like Sarah, you've said about the heavenly cosmos and the strata of the heavenly bodies. And that's another reason, by the way, why they say you shouldn't really call this the space trilogy because it's not about say it's not about space. It's about the heavens that God is, creativity is so far beyond our capacity to even imagine that we then can't even find the world that exists inside of ourselves until we go into that great place alone. Then we realize there's a whole world inside of ourselves. <laughs> Clara, the look on your face. <laughs> this is maybe a little less ethereal but i was also thinking of the the way that ransom kept trying to pin everyone down so 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 your race does this well no no not really but then he was questioning maybe it was an eldil or maybe it was oryarsa i don't remember now but um saying something about so so you live here Mm -hmm. and they're they don't even understand the question no we don't we we live everywhere. This is just where you're seeing us now. There, uh, just a concept of not having to be present in one spot and only dwelling on this planet. Does that that didn't have anything to do with well, it? Did it? But I, well, I think it does. <laughs> I think it does because when he when they're when they're leaving Malacandra. And he remember he thought that there were only a certain number of hydramets. Like, did he think there were only like three hydramets? And as they as they go back, he realized there were seven. No, there were seventy. And the further away the spaceship got, the more hydramets he thought he could perceive, which showed it revealed even they don't know how vast their own planet is, but the Oyarsa does, and the Eldil they have perspective. The Eldil is able to go with the spaceship, right? And and sustain the spaceship. And they have perspective. That's why they are so light just passes right through them because they are so symbiotic with the light. Like in further up and further in, uh, no, I'm sorry, like in the great divorce when they're going further up and further in and you must become what is it? They have to become less solid. Solid? Yeah, they have to become less solid in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It was more like saying like the universe is like this full of life and light. And the earth is actually more like you're falling down, like into this like dark, cold place. Whereas like we tend to think like space is dark and cold and nothingness and the earth is full of life. So he was kind of showing this like completely different perspective of the universe. Like we think of it differently. If we think more, I guess, of like, like a spiritual realm or spiritual view of reality right because we can't forget the title of the book is out of the silent planet and we don't find out until the end why is it silent 
And so that skews the perspective of Ransom and everyone else concerned is that, you know, everybody, the universe is full of different kinds of creatures on the different planets wondering what happened to our planet. Right. Why don't we ever hear anything from them? There's no communication. And we think that They're the we're problem. not the silent ones. They right. are. Yeah. And it's really that the Oyarsas of the other planets have prevented us from entering into theirs because they have what they have seen they know will bend their own. We are the shunned ones. Yeah, so these other planets, maybe we didn't actually say, but they're like they're basically like not fallen. Right. right? <laughs> like Earth's the only, only fallen, fallen planet. <laughs> That's right. Which makes Paralandra so fascinating when we get there next month because Paralandra is younger than Earth. And yet it's not fallen and we are, but Malachandra's not fallen, and yet it might have somehow been because the Oyarsa talking about the unmaking of the men. I thought this was just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something happened there, maybe like the war in heaven kind of idea. Right, there was an evil there. And so I love that the Oyarsa there has command over over the bodies. And he understands what will happen because remember, Hui finds out that his wife will have a baby, but they know that he will not live to see it. The unmaking that when done by the Oyarsa, it can be a mercy to everybody. For if you love God, when you are unmade, you will go straight to him. Dying with a smile on your face and the keeper of the bees. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or the gift of death mm-hmm. in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Men received the gift of death. Mm-hmm. And it just goes show goes to show how the bent in this world has changed, has unmade the true perspective of things, you know, caused us to fear things that shouldn't be feared. You know, that this is, that it's just a transition and the best is yet to come. Those kind of things, <laughs> whereas you, you don't need to f- fight so hard. I, I keep thinking of that poem, um, you know, where you're fighting against death um, and, you know, you're supposed to battle it with all your worth. Only if you think the hereafter is not the beginning of the greatest story ever told, you know? Exactly. But we see Ransom doing that from the very beginning. As soon as he gets out of the out of the spaceship, the first thing, the only thing he can think of is getting away because he's afraid of the people who were actually there to help him. And he makes the wrong decision over and over and over again right. about what to be afraid of. Right. But the difference is that he's he's also learning as he goes along. But isn't that interesting? Because the, the Panao of Malachandra do not have an inherent distrust of each other. They don't fear each other. And in fact, remember when he asks Hui about the resources, well, would you share the resources? Yes, of course we would share the Of course, we, we've done it before. If if a Sorn needs something, of course, if we have it, we give it to them. There, there's just no question about that. And yet that is what stumps the Oyarsa is, why did you come here assuming that I was evil and that I meant bad things for you? Why would you lead with that? Why would you live with this irrational fear? What have we ever done to give any indication that this is something to be feared? What has twisted your mind and your innocence to make you like this? 
Now, what's fascinating is, as we read the next two books, again, without spoiling, we begin to realize that Lewis is condemning the Enlightenment. He is condemning the Divines and the Westons. And he is celebrating what could be, you know, the Malachandrians, that, that their innocence and their joy. But he does not think that being born human is an ill. And by the end, what we see is Lewis is saying, you do live on the greatest planet. And you will have the greatest gift. Because your planet is the one in which a Savior was born. For all of the heavens. There is just one heaven and just one Savior. That Savior happened to enter space and time in this place. And that has meaning. But of course, it's a war. (laughs) So we've got to get through the war. And I hadn't thought about this. Well, maybe I did a long time ago and didn't remember it. But from the very beginning, when Ransom stumbles into the two evil men getting ready to take the innocent victim, Mm -hmm. he starts right there ransoming. Correct. He doesn't know that's what he's doing, but he saves that young man. That's right. It, who knows what have, what would have happened to him when they got to um, the, the planet, but unknowingly, he already has ransomed someone. Well, and isn't it interesting, too, that Christ says to let the little children come to him, and the, the boy they would have taken was childlike. Mm-hmm. The Oyarsa wouldn't have done any harm to him. No. Back to your question too, Sarah, when it, the, they ask, like, why would you assume that we meant harm and that we meant evil? And I think it's so obvious because that's how people are. People lead with who they are. They lead with what they believe. Yes. So people will assume evil of others if they would do evil to others. Right. So because that is how Western and divine would be, if someone else came to their planet, they would assume they meant evil because they mean evil. Right. And I think he's pointing that out, that everyone's showing up as themselves, acting the, based on their either their wholeness, their bentness, or their brokenness. Right. But there's, I agree, but there's still a, a stain of bentness in us all. Because Ransom, the hero, he still comes from a place of fear. And they say that, that your only fault here is that you were fearful. Right. And that's said to him in right. the end. And that's how he showed up was fearful, fearful. Mm-hmm. but he didn't show up broken no. um, or bent to the level that Weston oh, was. Oh, right. Exactly. Where he would perform evil. Right. Yeah. Right. We all carry the stain of original sin. Even when we are made clean, we still have the long-term echo of that. So there are, you know, that that's the inheritance we have is that we do have fear and we do have anxiety and and that's the Oyarsa is saying, what has the evil one done to your planet to rob you of your peace like this? Can I recommend yes. another book that I think is helpful for this? I don't know. Have you guys seen this one yet? The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis by Jason M. Baxter. It's on Audible, too. Oh, no, that one I haven't seen. Yeah, I think it came out last year, maybe. It's helpful for kind of understanding his, like, Lewis's ideas of the medieval cosmos because like I had no really clue of what he was getting at (laughs) um so this was a helpful book and it it touches on a lot of Lewis's writings from his fiction and nonfiction. marvelous 
I think it's good. It's I tried listening to it on Audible and was getting a little bit lost. Um, so I have it yeah. in print also. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and friends, I want you to know that I have some really pretty paperbacks. And Tanya found some really pretty hardbacks. The wonderful thing about Lewis is he's perennially in print and there's always new pretty ones coming out. So if you don't have copies, you can have, maybe you'll find a 75 cent copy at your local thrift store that have great margin notes in it. (laughs) But if you don't and you need copies, we will have links in the show notes um, to some of the additions that we have. And as always, we beg you to go to BiblioGuides and get all the other details that you can find there on these books. And of course, we'll link Sarah's recommendation. So friends, next time is Paralandra. And yes, they have to be read in order. And yes, they're all available on Audible. And no, I wouldn't be listening to Audible around young people unless you know what you're reading. So there's your warning, friends. So, Sarah, when you say there was content in this other than cussing, are you talking about just violence in this? Are you talking about content in the future books? I'm talking about there were a number of comments about sexual matters in this book, but they're glossed over. I'm (laughs) feeling really bad right now because I don't remember. They went over my head, too, if they were there. I don't remember reading that. <laughs> oh, I remember he was he was interested in how they had mm-hmm. children. And you only have, like, one child? And maybe that's oh, the way okay. or something. <laughs> I don't know. You know, oh, that kind of is it thing. not pleasurable? Oh, I do not okay. want more of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I guess I thought that was so anthropological, not titillating, that I was just kind of didn't. I was like, <laughs> okay. There are a couple of times where Divine is referring to, like, the women he's going to have when he can have everything yeah, he wants. Yeah, I remember that. And so it, it is pretty subtle, but it's the kind of thing that, like, when I read it to my eight-year-old, I know it just... Whoosh, right. But if you turned a child loose to read it themselves and they had time to ponder that, it could be a little bit different. And I just... Yeah. Maybe this is a great opportunity to, too, to define something that is well-known in some of my circles, but maybe isn't for others. But moms, if you have... Boys especially, in sort of that 9 to 13, 8 to 14-year-ish range, this is a period that we call coming out of the latency period. You know, the hormones are starting to come online, and they're starting to be an awareness and a sensibility of gender and gender matters, but there is still not yet a properly formed understanding of those things. We, in the theology of the body circles that I am in, we try very hard to sort of veil that time for our young boys and leave it not as a time to explore things before their time. And so anything that might be sort of trip worthy for them, anything where they're like, wait, what? What was said there? The kind of thing that a 12-year-old boy would catch that maybe a 45-year-old mother wouldn't, that's the kind of stuff that we just (laughs) want to make sure you know it's there. You decide, you know your children, you know your family. We're not telling you what to do. We're just telling you that if if you got a boy in that range and you're sensitive to these issues, your eight-year-old's probably going to miss it, but your 12-year-old probably isn't. And if your 12-year-old didn't miss it, they're probably thinking about it. And you got to decide if, when, and how you want that to be presented to them. In in Chapter 5, Weston and Divine are arguing about something. And 
Weston says, if you're so fond of the brutes as that, you'd better stay and interbreed if they have sexes, which we don't know yet. Don't you worry. When the time comes for cleaning the place up, we'll save one or two for you. And you can keep them as pets or vivisect them or sleep with them or all three, whichever it takes you, mm -hmm. whichever way it takes you. Yeah. That kind of thing. Those kinds of comments. Totally subtle to us. And there, but, aren't, there aren't very many. Right. But it does paint a picture that for some would be a stumbling block. You know, we're never trying to be prudish. We're just trying to give moms information so they can decide. Nope. Just when I read, I'm also reading for content considerations for biblioguides. And I, I thought, right. what did I miss <laughs> on that one? And I did. <laughs> but I will say in Paralandra, it's a inherently more sexual. There's a more sexual tone to that one. And then in That Hideous Strength, there is overt discussion of birth control and coldness in marriage and dysfunction in marriage. So those are things that moms, you, you do not want a 12-year-old reading that unless you have a 12-year-old that you think is just ready for that. No going in blind. Oh, friends, I spent years reading these books alone and not having anybody to discuss them with. This is a little bit of a dream come true for me to be able to discuss these with you. I think these books are best appreciated with friends. I think they're hard to read all by yourself. And there's a lot of a lot of layers to these. And it's just so wonderful to see the different offerings that we each bring to the table and the, the different understandings and the different questions. So I thank you for being here. And all those who are listening, we thank you for listening in. And if you're feeling alone and like you really wish you could discuss this with somebody, we would love to have you join us in our Plumfield Reads community, which is part of the BiblioGuides online community. It's totally free. You're totally welcome in there. And we would love to talk about this. So whether you have questions or comments or you just want to go have a bookish place to hang out with other people who kind of get you, you're so welcome over there. So the information for how to find us is, of course, in the show notes. Or you can always send us a message and find us on Facebook, on our website, on Instagram, or in Mighty Networks. Friends, thank you for reading along with us. Please come back and join us for Paralandra in May and for That Hideous Strength in June. And then after that, we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to do Christmas in July, friends. And we're going to do some really fun Christmas books for our book club in July. And we hope that you will enjoy having that kind of goodness halfway through the year. And from there, we have exciting plans coming that we'll be talking about very soon. So please continue reading along. Join us. And thank you for coming along on the ride with us. Until next time, friends. 